chaotic and crazy time in our world. More cases of COVID-19 are discovered each day. Restrictions and closures are steadily handed down by the government to try and slow the pace of the spread of the disease. And who knows when that will end. There are toilet paper shortages, travel bans, schools not meeting, churches not gathering, practically everything shut down. It is a crazy and chaotic time in our world, at least from our point of view. Things may seem actually to be quite out of control. One uh, friend who works at a grocery store said that every morning is like Black Friday to try to get to the toilet paper. Uh, it, is, it just seems out of control, doesn't it? Or at least on the brink of out of control. But there is a seat from which the world is distinctly not out of control. It's not even on the brink of out of control. And that seat is the throne of God. From His vantage point, nothing is out of control. I've said it many times, and it bears repeating, especially in our day, that God is sovereign over every molecule at every moment, meaning that He has absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything. You see, this virus to us is invisible and unpredictable, but it is not invisible, and it is not unpredictable to God. The world has not slipped out of His hand. This virus has not slipped through His fingers. God is sovereign. But in these days, we need to know that, and we need to know something more, namely that God is good, that He can do no wrong, that while evil and disease may come into our lives, God Himself is not evil, that evil even when those things, as Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. When evil comes into our lives, God still has good purposes. His view of all of history is so I mean, it is all-encompassing. There's nothing He's missing, and our viewpoint is very myopic. It's just right here, right in front of us. But we will find, as we trust Him, we will see along the way, and we will see most clearly at the end, that not only has He been sovereign, He has been good. He has been merciful. Now, that's true in our day as we face this COVID-19 crisis, and it was also true in biblical times, including the chapters that we will look at today. Today's text is three full chapters, 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 11. And here, God's sovereignty and God's goodness, particularly His mercy, are on display, not in the midst of a pandemic but in the establishment of Israel's first king, Saul. Now, to do our reading, I'm not going to read every single word of these three chapters, but we will read a fair amount, and I will skip through, and we will make, because I want everyone to get the flow of the story. So, we'll start in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. 
I will refrain from telling you at home what page number that's on because all our pages are different. This is what the Spirit says. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Suf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, uh, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Now skip down to verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you to a man, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? And for all your father's house? Down to chapter 9, verse 25. When they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul up on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, I'll explain those signs in a moment, but skip down to verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is Samuel still talking to Saul. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. 
Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Now down to verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, you, uh, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves to the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands." Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if, no one, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Verse 11, And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites <clears throat> until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men rejoiced greatly. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, so much is happening in these chapters. We pray for clarity. We pray that your Spirit will teach us. We pray that we will see what you are seeking to say through these words. 
And not only that we will see what you are saying, but we will love what you are saying. We will treasure your word, that we will heed it, that we will be changed by it. Conform our thoughts and our words and our actions to what you teach in your holy word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, historically, this is a moment of change in Israel. The governmental structure is changing from being led by judges to shift to a monarchy. Morally, this time is a time of failure because Israel has rejected God as their king. Theologically, it is a moment of revelation. God is on display putting His sovereignty and His goodness, in particular His mercy, out there for all to see. And what we see in these three chapters together is this, that God sovereignly and mercifully appoints a king over His people. God sovereignly and mercifully appoints a king over His people. What is takes up the most space is God's sovereignty in this, so that we will spend most of our time there thinking about this first thing, that God sovereignly appoints a king. Now, we see this in several ways, and I I want to list them for you and think through what is happening here. First of all, we see God's sovereignty in the fact that God chooses Saul. Now, for good reason, Saul is often called the people's choice. All right? Uh, Because in part, I mean, the people demanded a king, but also in chapter 12, verse 13, Samuel says to the nation, Behold, now behold the king whom you have chosen. So Samuel connects Saul to the people and to their choice. But in truth, God has actually chosen Saul. He is behind it all. His sovereign hand is doing this. So that in chapter 10, verse 24, Samuel says to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Now, if you think about this choice for just a moment, it's really quite something because it's an unexpected choice. Now, when we start, I mean, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we see that Saul is tall He's handsome. He's rich. I mean, this is a kingly-type pedigree. If you want someone who's going to go into negotiations with other nations, this is the guy you want, the guy who's going to go in, and his stature is very intimidating, and he's striking, so all the ladies are swooning. I mean, there's nobody more handsome. If there was a Mr. Israel competition, he would get it. He's tall. He's dark. He's handsome. He's rich. Uh, I mean, if he was on eHarmony, you know, people would be lining up for this guy. But he's there, and he sounds like exactly who you would want. So why would this be an unexpected choice? Well, it's unexpected because he's a Benjaminite. Now, if the people who would know of the Benjaminites then, I mean, we have to really think about this, but it hasn't been too long ago at the end of the book of Judges that multiple men from the tribe of Benjamin committed unthinkable sexual sin against one woman. Multiple men, one woman, left her to die. And the result was civil war. All the other tribes come against Benjamin, and in fact, Benjamin is almost completely wiped out because of this civil war. And 
Did I read this right? Can you imagine, right? They're sitting there. Am I reading this right? It's from that tribe? From this small, despicable tribe that we're going to have our first king? That's pretty unexpected, isn't it? It's not just an unexpected choice. It is clearly God's choice. This is not happenstance. If you look at chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the day, there's kind of a break in the action so that we can see behind the scenes. Saul's on his way to meet Samuel. But the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. The writer wants to make clear that the people aren't taking a vote to see who they like best. God is the one who has chosen him. God's hand is moving everything to this end in this scene. So in these small, seemingly random events, God's choice is going to get to the throne. In fact, just consider, just think about it. This is why the donkeys are lost. This is why these donkeys who, who don't have cognition as we do. They're not thinking, you know what we need to do. We need to get Saul over to Samuel because he's good looking and he'd make a nice king. No. Donkeys just wander off. Why? Because God wants them to wander off. The, Saul and his servant go to three different regions trying to look for him and they can't find him. And then they connect with Saul, but why? I mean, this servant just happens to find a quarter shekel of silver, which we didn't read, but he happens to find. They, they talk about a gift they should take to the man of God if they're going to inquire of him. And this servant happens to have a quarter shekel of silver on him. Then they bump into some ladies drawing water, and they say, uh, is there a man of God around here? And they said, well, yes, if you go in there, he's about to go up. And it's also why they catch Samuel before he leaves for the sacrifice. It was interesting. I couldn't help but laugh. This is absolutely off the point, but I couldn't help but laugh. It, chapter 9, verse 13, when the ladies are set, talk, they're talking to the ladies drawing water, and the ladies say, As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. That phrase, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice, is the experience I've had at every member's meal I've ever been to. The people just simply won't eat until the pastor shows up and says the blessing. I mean, are we actually permitted to eat in this church building unless Toby is present to say the prayer? Uh, I'm happy to pray, but I just found it very funny that that's uh, what they said was going on. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Isn't that true? So whether it was obvious to anybody at that point or not, Saul is clearly God's choice. God is working everything out to get Saul to the throne. In fact, you can expand this to say that whether we realize it or not, every ruler that sits in every office of authority has been put there by God. So Daniel chapter 2 Daniel says he changes, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Romans 13 may be clearest in our minds. There is no authority except from God, that those who exist have been instituted by God. This is important to remember. I mean, at this moment in our history, we are sitting here in an election year. 
that through the choice of voters, men and women will be chosen for various offices with varying types of authority. And whether my particular choice ends up in the, is the city's choice or the state's choice or the nation's choice, whether, whether, it's my, whether it was my choice on my ballot or not, I can know this, that he or she is God's choice for his purposes. God is the one who chooses Saul. Next, we see God's sovereignty in the fact that God, God anoints Saul. God anoints Saul. So once Samuel and Saul find each other, Samuel makes it clear that this encounter is more than about finding lost donkeys. That's what verse 20 is about when he says, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? In other words, there is something huge on the horizon for you, Saul. There is something when you left the farm to find the donkeys, you could not even imagine the future that awaited you. Yet, it awaits you. And that horizon with those things begins to dawn the next day. Verse 27, they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. This is the anointing of Saul. But but what Samuel says, notice what Samuel says. He doesn't say, just pay attention, I'm anointing you. He says, has not the Lord anointed you? The Lord is doing this. Now, prior to this, only priests were being anointed with oil. They were set apart to God. They lead Israel in worship. They speak God's Word to the people. They offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They are a kind of go-between. They are mediators. And likewise, the anointing of Saul, in the anointing of Saul as king, he is set apart for this service. Another kind of go-between. He is to represent the authority and justice and goodness of God to the people, something that every person who would ever want authority should actually keep in mind. Whether it is the parental authority in the home, whether it is I am a manager at my work, whether I lead a team at my school, whether I am on the city council, whether I'm on the school board, whether I'm the governor, whether I'm the president of the United States, God's ordained purpose is that those who are in authority should represent not simply the authority of God, but the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God and the justice of God to those that they lead. God appoints human leadership for the good of all, all those who are being led, not for the glory of the one leading. And we have so forgotten this in our day. We have so forgotten it. When elected officials will brag about they, who, how they are the best that has ever been, that I can always do this and I can always do that and you don't have to worry because I know everything and I can do everything right. This is a clear forgetfulness of our place. Authority, human authority is instituted by God. It is appointed by God for His glory and for the good of those who are being led. And so Saul is anointed here to lead on God's 
behalf. Now this anointing will be made evident when the Spirit of God rushes upon him and empowers him to do the work. God chooses Saul. God anoints Saul. Third, God confirms Saul privately. Now look at the rest of chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel says, You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. All right? So Samuel speaks of a sign. We won't read it, but from verses 2 through 6, 7... Yeah, six or seven. Uh, Samuel talks about these signs. So first, he's going to come to a place called Zelza. He's going to run into a couple of men who are going to assure him the donkeys have been found. Then, near the Oak of Tabor, three men are going to come, One carry, the first carrying three goats, the, first, the second carrying three loaves of bread, the third carrying wine, and they're going to share two loaves with Saul, probably for one for Saul, one for his servant. And then he's going to come to a group of prophets, and there the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him, change him, and make him prophesy along with him. Now, we need to not read New Testament thinking back into what's happening here. But when the Spirit of God comes upon someone, they are changed in the sense that they are able to do and empowered to do those things which they could not or would not do beforehand. So there will be a change in Saul. But this is not regeneration as we think of regeneration. So let's just be clear on that. But he's going to prophesy, and it all happens. And actually, only the third part is detailed. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets... The people said to one another, Who has come, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? People who knew Saul are there. They see him, they hear him, and they're amazed. They say, Wait a second, is this, is this the same Saul that we... Is this the guy who couldn't keep up with donkeys? Now he's prophesying. And so this proverb comes along. I mean, this is how proverbs come along. Amazing moments, you know, is Saul also among the prophets? It's like, it's like when we say things like, well, wonders never cease. My pa, my, uh, my mother's father, whenever I would go, I would call ahead and tell him we're coming. I would show, I would tell him, I'm, like in college, I would stop by the town, I would go to see him, I would call ahead so I'd make sure they were there. They were always there, but I would call ahead to make sure they were going to be there. And I would show up and I would walk in. I would even tell them about when I'm coming. But when I walked in, my Paul would always say, well, I'll be. I mean, as if I was surprising him, as if he had no clue I was coming. And so that's the kind of thing that's happening here. And even though God confirms Saul, Saul keeps it private. Did you notice? Look at, we didn't read it, but look at verse 14 to 16. Saul's uncle said to him and his servants, where'd you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we came, and when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So God has confirmed Saul, but it is still private, small scale. 
Next, God presents Saul. This is what happens in the next paragraph. Saul is presented to the people in this formal ceremony, but it doesn't begin as you might expect. Verse 17, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Now, you sitting there, if you're in the crowd and Samuel says that, you're like, yes, we remember, and now, he, and now he's going to say more great things about us. And actually what Samuel says is, but today you have rejected your God. Now, that is not how most formal ceremonies go. A rebuke of the entire group of people who are there. But this is something that the people must never forget. The reason they have a king is because they rejected the king. That's why this is happening. And they are going to remember it, maybe not immediately, but they should remember it when things begin to go south. All those things that Samuel said would go wrong, when they go wrong, they should remember it. So there's this ceremony, there are lots cast, and Saul's name is called, but he is nowhere to be found. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. One of the first weddings I did (laughs) was for my cousin, and she is not happy about being up in front of any group of people whatsoever. So we did it in my grandmother's backyard. We had everything set up. It was just a family wedding. And uh, so she's ready, and we're about ready to start, and I cannot find the groom anywhere. I can't find him. I look inside the house. I look in the backyard. I'm knocking on bathroom doors. I can't find him. Well, he was actually in the bushes out front um, losing his lunch. He was so nervous about the whole ceremony, about the whole notion of till death do us part. He's in, hiding in the bushes, losing his lunch. Now, he straightened up, and everything went fine, and they're still married and all these things, but <laughs> he is hiding. And I, I mean, the text doesn't tell us why Saul is hiding, whether he's nervous or not, but here he is. He's buried in baggage. Now, they find him. They present him, and then the cry rings out, Long live the king! And then Samuel declares his kingly duties, and then the people are dismissed. But it's interesting, as they walk out and as the press corps overhears the conversation from this form, you know, they're covering for the Israel Times and the Jerusalem Street Journal and all these things, and they're doing their business, and the people are coming out of this ceremony, they're not hearing the same things. Look at verses 26 and 27. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. God had touched their hearts. This is the man that God has chosen. Our hearts are with him. But, verse 27, some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. It's a mixed bag of reactions to Saul, but still, God is presenting him as the one who is king. One more bit of God's sovereignty. God is now going to confirm Saul publicly. That's what chapter 11 is about. What was private in chapter 9 with 
the, the, the signs and all of that is now going to be made public. And it, it's made public as we meet this fellow, Nahash the Ammonite. He is a nasty guy. And uh, he's got his eye, uh, pun intended, on Jabesh Gilead. These guys are, and Jabesh, the men of Jabesh are glad to surrender to Nahash and serve him if he'll sign a treaty, which would mean they're basically asking him to not wipe them out and protect them and let them live, but they will serve him. But he's got one condition. He wants their right eyes, all of them. Now, this is a really gruesome condition. It may be because this is just how he handled all the people that he conquered, it also may be because when you went into battle, you wore your shield over your left eye and you used your right eye to keep in front of you to watch the enemy. And so it could be a military move so that these people cannot revolt and fight against him. Whatever the case, Nahash is so confident he's going to give him a week to try to find somebody to help. Can you imagine? He's so confident. He said, look, whatever you do, I am the best that there ever was. I'm going to have your eyes, going to sign the treaty. You're going to be mine. Don't you worry about it. I've got it. Here's my press secretary. She's going to uh, uh, make everything clear to you uh, that you will be serving me. So why don't you run along and see if you can find someone who can help. That's fine. Run along and do that. But look what happens. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man." Now, 330,000 people come, men come out. Saul puts them into three companies. They attack. They win. But the question is, how, how did that happen? How, how is it that a boy who can't keep up with donkeys, who hides in the baggage when he's going to be presented king, can now muster the 330,000 troops, organize them, come up with strategy, send them out, and win this victory. How does that happen? Well, verse 6 tells us, verse 6 tells us the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. It is, as Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this victory over his enemies confirms in the minds of everyone that Saul is king. The doubts that were there at the end of chapter 10 are now gone at the end of chapter 12, and everybody is rejoicing. So God chooses and anoints and presents and confirms Saul privately and publicly. All of it is done by the sovereign hand of God. But... The second thing, and much more briefly, it is God mercifully appointing a king. This is an act of God's mercy. Think about it. Remember last week, chapter 8, the people want a king, but they don't just want any king. They want a king like all the other nations. 
who will lead like all the other nations. And to have that king, remember they had to reject God as king. And to reject God as king is to reject God himself. It's actually the same kind of rejection we see in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are deceived. They see the fruit. Eve sees the fruit. It looks good to eat. It looks like just what she needs. They just say, we don't want God's way. We don't want God's rule. We are going to go our own way. Give us that which God says we don't need and shouldn't have. And in the same way, the Israelites are deceived, aren't they? They look at the other nations. They see something they want. They don't want a divine throne. They want a throne like everyone else. So they reject God. And yet in the face of Israel's rejection, God doesn't give them what they deserve. As Psalm 103 puts it, He did not treat them according to their sins. What they deserved was not only a one-way ticket out of the land that God had just given them, but a complete and eternal rejection. That is what they deserved. But instead, God shows mercy. He is going to give them a king. But actually, there's more than even just the act of giving a king. Look at what God says to Samuel in chapter 9, verse 16. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. That is amazing. Saul will not simply be king. He will save the people. He will save them from their enemies. God sees His people. He comprehends their affliction. He knows their suffering. He hears their cry. And He is going to give them something they don't deserve, which is more than just a king, but a king who will be filled with the Spirit of God in order to conquer their enemies. God goes, His mercy is more. Their sins are many. His mercy is more. That is such good news for us. That is so good to know that we as believers, we continue to fail the Lord, and yet He continues to not give us what we deserve. And He gives us more than just not what we deserve. He gives us what is good. He gives us Himself. It is wonderful. And this mercy is one of the signposts that will last throughout Israel's history. So centuries later, Nehemiah will be praying after the wall is complete. And there's a pattern in Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah 9, and it happens four times in that prayer, but I just want to read one of them where Nehemiah prays, Our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. And in the next verse, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Four times you can find that kind of pattern. That's your homework for this afternoon is to go read Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah 9 and circle the place where Israel fails and draw a line to God's mercy afterwards because it's only within about a verse that you'll find it. It's a wonderful, merciful God that we serve. God sovereignly 
and mercifully appoints a king over his people. But when you think about it, this God who has done this for Israel in this historical account has done this for us once and for all in Jesus. You see, Jesus is chosen, not in the same way Saul was chosen, you understand, but the absolute sovereignty of God to not simply move some donkeys, but to move all of human history to the place that Jesus arrives, so that Paul will later write, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And He too was unexpected. He is born in Bethlehem. He lives in Nazareth. So that, so that they're saying, now, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's exactly like what they said about Saul. Can anything good come out? I know this guy. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Don't we, aren't his sisters among us? Don't we know this guy? How, where did he get this authority, really? Jesus is chosen. But Jesus was anointed as well at his baptism. The Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove and anoints him, setting him apart as the one that God has promised and empowering him for his ministry and his mission. Jesus was confirmed privately. As he went place to place, his words are confirmed by miracles. So that in Mark chapter 2, he tells a paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And then he tells all the doubters, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sin, rise up and walk. And he rises up and walks. It is a private confirmation. And all of these signs happen. John records them. And then he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's interesting, as Jesus is confirmed by all of these things, especially in the book of Mark, He's constantly telling people, now would you please be quiet about this? Would you please be quiet about this? It's not my time. It's not my hour. Just keep it to yourself. And nobody could. But that was what He was doing. Then Jesus is presented. Remember when He enters Jerusalem? He is presented. The crowd lays palm branches before Him, and they cry out, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a kind of long live the king moment here in Jerusalem. But it wasn't a mixed bag. It was actually a completely changed tune that happens because days later, upon being presented, the crowd that blessed Him will call for His crucifixion. And Jesus is not simply publicly presented as the king who enters. He is presented as king who hangs on the cross with the claim, king of the Jews, hanging above his head. And there he dies. But then, Jesus is confirmed publicly. The confirmation that happened person by person in miraculous signs went public in the miraculous sign. Jesus is raised from the dead so that Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection which we will celebrate in two weeks says something. It speaks. It says, Jesus is King. And His resurrection means that sin and death 
and hell and the devil, our greatest enemies, have been defeated. Or as we so often sing, death is dead, love has won, Christ has conquered. And God did all of that by His sovereign hand and according to His great mercy. We do not deserve a king like Jesus. We deserve anarchy in hell. And yet, God has given us that kind of king in Jesus, a king who saves His people from their sin, a king who condescends to care for us, a king who will safely bring us home to His heavenly kingdom. God has sovereignly and mercifully appointed the king of kings over His people. The question is, is He your king? Have you bowed your knee to this King who, while you were a still sinner, died for you? This King who, though you are His enemy, will make you His child if you come to Him? Is He your King? Friends, testing positive for COVID-19 suffering its effects, even dying because of it. These are horrible realities that people, maybe that you know, are facing. But sin and death and hell are our greatest enemies. They will crush us long after COVID-19 dies. Yet Christ has defeated them for us in His death and resurrection And He has defeated them for all who will come to Him by faith. God has sovereignly and mercifully appointed King Jesus for us. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of Your sovereignty and Your mercy. We are in awe of Your absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything. And we are in awe that though we deserve hell, You do not treat us as our sins deserve. Even as we sit here breathing, we are experiencing Your mercy, whether we know it or recognize it or not, because we right now, anyone who can hear my voice, is under the mercy of God. A mercy that cries out, come to me and be saved. Father, we pray in these times of chaos that we will rest in your sovereign goodness. And I pray that in the midst of this chaos that many who don't know you will look maybe for the first time to find your steady hand ready to hold them to carry them through this life and to heaven. Thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for His death and His resurrection for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin, for your glorious kingdom. Thank you that it is eternal. 
May we live as those who know that the kingdom to which we belong is an eternal kingdom and the city to which we are going is better than any earthly city. And we thank you that when we get there, there'll be no more pain and no more crying and no more COVID, no more cancer, no more accidental gunshots, no more back injuries, no more surgeries, none of it. But you will have gloriously abolished sin and all of its rippling effects. Lord, we can't wait to be there. Help us to live as those who know that is where we are headed. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.